Welcome back to Repod, the University of Salford's research podcast with me, Professor Andy Meir. And today we're talking to Dr. Brendan Williams in the School of Arts, Media and Creative Technology, who's been working as a sound producer and engineer for years, developing innovative techniques in spatial sound and signal processing, which has informed the recent history of jazz, transforming it into yet another era. Enjoy. Good morning. How are you, Brendan? I'm good, thanks, Andy. How are you doing? Yeah, good. This is really a fantastic week. We are also, as always, with the podcast experimenting, and we've had a bit of experimentation leading up into this interview, particularly with the audio, and we'll see if it works out well for us. But uh, yeah. we're going out live on LinkedIn, the University of Salford's LinkedIn account for the first time, which is fantastic. So we're across eight channels today, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube. And it's it's great to start off with something so so creative. So, so Brendan, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do at the university. So, uh, yeah, I'm uh, the program leader for creative music technology. That's a, a, a pretty sizable undergrad music program. Uh, so we're kind of tied into the whole of the music department. But what we do in that program is is focused, as you might imagine, around the use of technologies, whether it's to create music, to write music, whether it's working with audio for media, uh, you know, kind of film soundtrack or sound design, Foley. And then also, of course, recording music so we've we've got a, a really nice suite of studios over in the new Adelphi building and uh, a lot of students kind of working with uh, internal music students and also bringing in you know external performers into the studio so that's the that's the day job <laughs> and then outside of that I've I've uh, you know for, for many many years I've worked as a as a producer engineer uh, and worked on a lot of really interesting album recording projects and I continue to do that and that's what forms the the core of the research and obviously the the core of this impact case study that we've put together I mean, certainly I feel like I've been lucky to sort of grow up in, in the era where practices research has really begun to flourish and be recognised and, and celebrated. And I think what's particularly interesting, speaking to people like yourselves, is to understand that connection. I, uh, I think how you connect your own creative practice to the research. So tell us a little bit about the journey, because the, I imagine the music came before the research. So tell us a bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it still is something that runs in tandem you know the so for yeah let me think back okay so the this particular study is focused on the work that i've done with gogo -Go penguin so gogo -Go penguin are a ostensibly a, a jazz trio you know they kind of look like a jazz trio on stage uh going back further uh i did a lot of records with a manchester-based label called gondwana that's run by matthew Halsall. so gondwana initially started out as a fairly fairly straight laced jazz label you know the, the the premise was let's let's make some records that sound sonically and also musically that 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 kind of reference this golden age of you know jazz recording so we were getting out of you know the the kind of typical studio environments that were around manchester and we were working in big acoustically supportive spaces so you know i was having delusions of grandeur thinking i was at 30th street columbia studios in the 50s or something or rudy van gelder's studio in englewood cliffs you know that 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 was the sound we were trying to trying to get so i spent a long time developing that practice and just 
getting good at making jazz sound right you know and then this band go go penguin came along and their influences although they played acoustic piano based drums their influences were way broader than you know kind of kind of blue <laughs> and mm-hmm. and you know all all, all of those uh, amazing but you know admittedly pretty old classic jazz recordings so they were listening to lots of electronic music they were listening to lots of contemporary classical music and you know we really just i felt really strongly that recording those guys in a traditional jazz environment would would be a bad call so we started taking them into studios where i've been working on uh you know pop rock proggy weird stuff <laughs> so we went out to wales and 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 did it in a in a studio up there called giant wafer initially and just sort of changed the practice of recording jazz really like mm. we, we we really sort of tried to turn things on the head get as much separation in the capture as possible so that we could process and reamplify and just approached it in a very very different way that, that didn't didn't feel unnatural you know it wasn't kind of calculated that it would it would become research worthy mm. but you know it became clear to to me and to to people that I was working with and I've been really well supported by people like professor alan williams and joe scott in our in our department who really helped me to understand how it could be uh well that it was research and how it could be framed as research successfully mm. so i guess from that standpoint moving on the sort of seeds were in my mind and i i could i could i could tie the research to the practice once I understood how to frame it. So I did my PhD by publication and, and kind of wrote about a series of releases. So yeah, it's a long journey uh, coming from, you know, a, a solely a practitioner and, and being able to understand how to frame it as research. But I, I think I'm just about there. I mean, it sounds yeah. like, I mean, it's almost like the way it should be that the, the sort of recognition or realization that what you were doing as part of your practice was also a kind of research process. So it's not like you're adding into it kind of artificial things. It's it's just sort of trying to articulate it as research. Is that is that how it sort of worked? That's exactly how it worked. So I've always felt really uh, conscious that, see, this is the real difference, I guess. Well, no, that sounds highfalutin. I'm sure there's lots of research. There is lots of research that hangs on the back of a, a, a commercial activity or an artistic activity, and that's the that's the really fine balance that I can't I can't force an artist that I'm working with to do something that suits my research aims. It has to be something that is mutually beneficial. So. I guess one could argue that that may be detrimental to the quality of the research, that there's this sort of external factor influencing the research, but I've never seen it like that. I think it's about making sure that the two things, that there's synchronicity between the two things. So, you know, that sonically what we've wanted to achieve with these Go Go Penguin records, and I should absolutely mention that all of these records are co-produced with chap called Joe Riser. Uh, Joe was one of one of our undergrad students and then one of my MA students. Uh, so I kind of brought Joe into this project. So that's been really lovely to uh, to work with him and the fact that he's got this kind of link to Salford as well. But yeah, we, we can never 
you know, we can never say we want to do this crazy spatial movement and, 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 you know, it's such a tune. <laughs> like, yeah. it's gotta, it's gotta be like, it's gotta be, uh, yeah, mutually beneficial. And, yeah. but actually the more we do things, uh, I think the more they've seen how that can function. So we've done all kinds of nutty things with, binaural dummy heads and like the last full length record we did we brought three binaural dummy heads into the studio and kind of had one for each member of the band and they were all used in very very different ways so uh they've kind of got on you know completely on board with that and and been really tolerant of uh these these dummy heads we, we, we just did a an ep at real world studios in bath which is peter gabriel's kind of amazing complex and and again use these dummy heads uh so we're kind of incorporating dummy heads now as like creative capture for, for binaural reproduction and if if people are not familiar with that binaural is kind of 3d audio or surround audio for headphones essentially uh surround capture uh that's being kind of implemented in lots and lots of you know vr AR and XR technologies at the moment, but it's a really old technology that that still functions brilliantly. But we're incorporating that with uh, also kind of height capture for Dolby Atmos representation. So there's lots and lots of things we're doing in this kind of creative musical context that we're then able to present in this research way because it is kind of at the at the edges of where the the medium is in a commercial sense so it's working about working out how the audience respond to these you know new interventions and and what what the market is and not in a i guess not in a particularly uh financially minded way but it's like are the listeners who are obviously very happy with what they've got in a stereo format are they going to go for this you know kind of extended sonic space mm. that we're operating in yeah i mean it's so interesting There's so much of what you've said that i think is fa absolutely fascinating and i want to pick up on particularly on the idea of how you work with your kind of practitioner base because i think that you sort of mentioned that it's not sort of always necessary for research or typically traditionally i think hasn't been for research to sort of think about the impact on that community and i think that's changing so dramatically i think that increasingly research at its most basic level, it has growing expectations to find communities of users, beneficiaries that can have some relationship and conversation with researchers in the process of its creation. So in all honesty, I think that the way you've done it is, is actually how all research should take place. And, and it's, a, <laughs> it's, a, it's a big step for many people to, to find that way into it. But, um, but obviously, in your case, if, it's, if you're developing something that then has no utility for the practitioners, then, then what's its purpose? So it's, uh, I think, a great model. And I suppose what interests me partly is also how the the artists themselves sort of find a way into making use of, of what you're doing. So how do you sort of broker that conversation? Like, I imagine it sort of comes out of you being kind of authentically part of that community and you have a dialogue between the practitioners and yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, be, that, that, that's the word that is this, this notion of community and it's a, it's a notion of culture as well. Like there's no kind of faking that, you know, I think that, uh, Whereas artists and bands are always really interested in the potentials of new technologies, this relationship of producer engineer, when when you enter into that relationship, 
you know, we're, we're going to go off and do a residential recording trip and we'll live together for two weeks and eat together. And, you know, and it, it, you effectively like join the band for that period. So just because you've got this new whizzy sound technology <laughs> doesn't get you in the door. You know, it's it, it's it's about what that can do for them. And I guess there are some nice examples of that. There's a there's a track on the last album that we did uh, called Don't Go which is the final track on the record. And as the track finishes, we sort of physically walked a dummy head on a pole away from the piano through the doors of the studio. And, you know, it's quite a sort of, uh, quite an obvious, you know, use of of this technology, but like to give the, the, the listener a sense that they're physically walking away from the piano and out of the studio. And then, you know, the door kind of shuts behind and that's the end of the album, you know. So it's a very sort of literal use of this technology where you, uh, yeah, you kind of put the listener in the player's perspective or somebody else's perspective. So I think when we've got things like that, that's a really easy, uh, that gets a really easy buy-in, you know, because it's uh, it's conceptually linked. Yeah. So there's there's a kind of conceptual link between the reason that we're using this technology and and the music that they're making. But then, yes, the next bit of it that's it's, it's not harder to grasp, but what we're trying to do with the kind of spatial technologies is support compositional gesture. So mm. where we we hear or we kind of feel a, a, a compositional gesture and what, what I guess we mean by that is uh, composition sort of has a shape parts of songs we can sort of see as a shape or as a sort of line in space if you will so we try and use the the spatialization to to reinforce this you know so if we can obviously like traditionally you can move from left to right and then we can push things back and forwards but now we can kind of move things around the backs of our heads and you know do all kind of in all kinds of interesting things i mean perhaps this this might explain this a bit i won't necessarily so this is like a well i will play it andy that would probably make yeah, more sense that, for people rather than me rabbiting about it <laughs> that audio okay yeah, yeah So what we've got there is a surround reverb chamber. So we've got three speakers pumping audio out into this very large reverberant live room, which is 80 Hertz studios up in the, the Sharp factory, uh, Sharp project, sorry. So the head is, we can push different elements of the track out through these speakers to create a reverberation that hangs around the back of the, the listener's head so we've got this kind of sense of envelopment within a space so we we kind of reamplify all of the individual bits of the trio into the space capture it on the head and then integrate that into the stereo version of the record so it's yeah it's it's about sort of creating spaces that support the music so you've got this very literal movement in space that can like conceptually mm. support the process and then this uh 
this different thing where we're it's about the way that we spatialize things and how that can support compositional gesture I mean, it's incredible just to see how much is changing around the creation of, of this sort of work. And I, and I guess the audience experience or the listener experience is absolutely crucial here. And But I wonder, how does that change the ways in which the artists sort of create the music? Is it, tell us a bit more about the process of creation and how that differs, bearing in mind this new sort of way of thinking about engineering. I'm just trying to think, does it, does it affect the way the music gets written? Like, mm. I mean, with this particular... With this t particular band, they're they're very much in a process of uh, kind of change. Like they've 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 recently, uh, well, they've a new member of the band, and that's changed things a little bit. But also, they've really embraced working kind of directly with technologies. So they're it was always a little bit of a unwritten rule that we would do things acoustically. You know that this whole for a period this this notion of like a new subgenre of like acoustic electronica emerged. And it was the notion that it was a, a band trying to play electronic music on acoustic instruments. So they were, you know, kind of uh, mimicking some of the interventions that technology brings to music. You know, they'd play in such a way that it sounded like a CD was skipping or something like this. So there's lots and lots of, uh, I mean, Rob, the drummer always, he told me a really interesting story once that he listened to, Aphex Twin, Richard D. James, and didn't know that it was made with samplers and just learned all the drum parts acoustically. <laughs> and they'd never never been played, you know, but he was just like, oh, I can probably, it's just quite hard. You know, this is, you know, yeah. for people who haven't heard that record, it's really, really skittery, you know, like heavily, heavily processed. So he was kind of learning how to play things that were, you know, very much created through mm. electronics. But now the band are working really heavily with electronics. So there's all kinds of synths on the records. There's modular synthesis. Uh, there's kind of sampling technologies that they're playing live whilst playing real instruments, you know. So Chris has got kind of keyboards that are controlling all kinds of different synths. And then uh, Nick's got a, a little Moog, uh, you know, like a Moog, what is it, a grandmother, like little semi-modular synthesizers. So there's all of that happening and that obviously sort of feeds into the potentials for, for spatialization. Mm. But when it, when it yeah. comes to actually playing as a trio, they're, they're doing it in the way that they always have. Mm -hmm. But what they've got very good at is allowing us to put them in quite non-traditional spaces when we record. So we're separating everybody out. Uh, I don't actually have any images of real world, but real, real world's quite an incredible space actually uh it's a, a huge live room and the control room is part of the live room so we've got the piano in that mm -hmm. space we've got the drums in what is a former uh it's a former water mill with a huge high space so they're all in physically different sometimes different buildings and i guess that's uh they've got very good at learning to do that and functioning in that way and the reason that we do that is because we need that spatial separation in order to put everybody in these interesting spaces and kind of support their compositional needs so it's yeah, yeah it, i think that answers the question or yeah, skirts we've, around we've got, it we've got another interesting question from tom who's on linkedin today and asked whether these this auditory effect, auditory effect can be scaled up to entire audiences like a theater is there is there that transformation to that taking place too it is it's that's beginning to happen and actually there's a I'm trying to 
I'm trying to make a project happen next year, actually, with Chris from Go Go Penguin and another chap, Robin Richards, that I work with a lot. And the intention there is to try and do live concerts within the context of an Atmos rig. Uh, so, yeah, it is possible. It The difficulty is if you're going to kind of play with these spatial processes and you want to put an audience inside a rig, you need to be in an extremely dead space, acoustically dead space. Mm -hmm. So it's funny, actually, I'm, I'm sat on Deansgate in central Manchester. And we used to have a studio over in the old Granada Studios complex. Uh, and in there, you've got these huge sound stages, which are acoustically really, really interesting in that you've got like a football pitch sized space. And when you're wow. enclosed in a space of that size, you're auditory expectation is that you walk in and it's reverberant and it's a big reverberant space but actually they're the deadest spaces you could ever go so it's this really odd feeling when you walk in that everything sucks in around you and it's like being in an anechoic chamber or a very dead mm. studio in, environment and they're the kinds of spaces where you could do live representation and move things around in space with perhaps an audience in the round mm -hmm. So an audience in the round around the performer with a huge array of surround speakers around them. Uh, that's the kind of thing that's happening. There's a there's a a, a really exciting project happening as well. Actually, I work with uh, I work a lot with an ensemble called Manchester Collective, and they are doing a project called Weather. I don't know whether they've talked about this yet or not. <laughs> but they are doing it, <laughs> but but. Uh, Again, Joe, that I work with with Go Go Penguin, he's he he does all of Manchester Collective's live sound, and he's doing this project. I feel terrible now. I've forgotten the name of this chap, <laughs> Chris. He's an incredibly well respected uh, field recordist called Chris, and he used to be in Cabaret Voltaire and has done all kinds of amazing stuff with the BBC. But he's he's captured all of this amazing. Uh, Kind of naturally occurring sound and they're going to present the, the the concert in surround with a huge surround rig and they're going to tour that as well so there's like lots and lots of uh considerations about taking a, a rig like that on the road and, and making it feasible so yeah it, it it is happening and more and more it's happening uh there are spaces that are being configured to be able to do that kind of thing I mean, it sounds like a fantastically exciting area to be working in as a as a practitioner, as a musician, a producer, and as a researcher. And I wonder, sort of thinking back to your your impact case study, when what sort of I, I guess has been the most sort of enjoyable aspect of it? Is it seeing the impact on the audiences or the audience experience? Or tell us a bit about what you've really kind of got out of it as a as a researcher, I suppose. Oh yeah, I think I think that is the. Uh... I mean, the, the 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 most exciting thing about it is the quality of the work that gets produced. Like, mm. I feel really, really sort of grateful and humbled that I that I've always, you know, I've maintained this relationship with the band because, you know, I I have to like seed ninety five percent of that success to them. You know, it's brilliant music and they're amazing performers. Uh, there's no point making. I always, you know, I say this to the students all the time. There's nobody wants to listen to amazing recordings of terrible music. <laughs> like it doesn't, it it's, it doesn't really float. Uh, so it's been, you know, just really, really uh, lovely to be part of that process. But undoubtedly, the the reception and the the reach of the work has been just 
amazing to watch, you know. And I think we all, I think it probably speak for everyone, like the band and Joe and me. <laughs> it's, it's, it's bonkers how successful that band have become. <laughs> and I guess that's what really spurred us to, to put the impact case study together because the reach has been so wide and, you know, without getting too deep into the, the lingo, like reach and impact, are, they're difficult to separate, you know, uh, the further the reach you increase the likelihood of impact because it just reaches more people, you know, but yeah, I mean, I, I guess when that, when, when that band got the Mercury nomination in 2014, that was a real surprise, you know, and that just catapulted things. It was, I, I really couldn't believe that Joe Fomian told me and I had to phone him back five minutes later. Said, Did you just say <laughs> we've got a Mercury Prize nomination for that really strange record that we made like a year ago? You know, it was re a real surprise. And that that then, you know, that then, then they were picked up by Blue Note. That that just was huge. And, and, and Blue Note as a subsidiary of kind of Universal and Decca in the States and in Europe. It just, you know, it it meant that we had like a budget which was really good and you know that perhaps goes back like if we were as researchers if we were to try and say i'm going to make a full length or i'm going to make four or five full length studio albums that investigate all of these technologies there is no way that i could do that you know like yeah no one in my school would give me the time to do it no one i don't think the ahrc would give us the budget you know to do it like so the only way that this can function is to tie and piggyback on top of the artistic and the commercial practice you know yeah. that's that's how it works uh yeah i guess you know the, the the i'm sure there's kind of similar academically focused research that can happen within film certainly computer games but it is always this process of uh yeah finding finding like-minded individuals who can actually get the thing out into the world and yeah. get in a kind of mutually beneficial relationship to happen. Yeah. I mean, that's such an important message. And uh, just to sort of think through what's next for you, because I mean, it's incredible to have this sort of story as to what you've done so far and the impact it's having on the, on the, community itself but i think musically and, and technologically it's, it's extraordinary i'm so proud to hear about this research at sulfur so what's next for you in terms of the development of this what's next so uh i'm like i said i'm off to back down to box it's called box in wiltshire where this studio is and we're going to go down there for a couple of weeks and put this new studio album together so that's going to be really exciting uh to, to get that done and then also in the summer, I'm doing a, quite a big scale record with Manchester Collective and this amazing composer called Edmund Finnis. Uh, Ed's working with Ruby Hughes and working on a, so it's a, a song cycle and that will all be captured in, yeah, with like Atmos configurations. So there'll be too many microphones <laughs> and not yeah. enough time to put them up but yeah like like a really really large scale capture and i'm hoping that see that the trick at the moment is getting the labels to to think about whether they want to do this kind of release because it's still expensive mm. so atmos is a you know like titles adopted it uh there's a few different streaming services that that 
offer Atmos as a kind of music listening experience. But it, there's, the idea is that it just folds down and it's dead easy. And you just make the record and then it folds down to headphones and everyone's happy. And that's a nonsense. Like it takes quite a lot more work <laughs> to make it happen. So at the moment, it's kind of this, uh, I have a sabbatical coming up and it's specifically to support the amount of time needed for me to turn these releases into something that can work in Atmos. So again, it's a really good example of like this piggybacking. So it's a 15 piece string orchestra and soprano in Stoller Hall for three days. That's really expensive thing to do, <laughs> like to put everybody together in, in that way. And again, that I can then come in and I'm making a release with them, which is going to be commercially released, but I'll put up all of the extra stuff to do the research and then I have that time to turn it into an output, you know, that functions in a particular way. So again, it's just that example of how the how the research piggybacks on the on the kind of commercial process, if you will. So that's going on. Uh, there's loads of stuff. I'm, I'm off to I'm going to innovation in music uh, innovation in music conference in Stockholm in a couple of months. Uh, that'll be really exciting because that'll be the first kind of physical. Uh, conference that i've done in a while i've got some irons in fires with more traditional research so there's that's kind of peer-reviewed conference proceedings and then there's a a monograph that i'm hoping to to put together over the next few years so like a, a pretty large scale written project so yeah lots and lots of like practice-based things and then some uh some real research so. <laughs> it's all real research i mean it's amazing to hear this Brendan. we unfortunately are out of time i thought we were going to hear some more music but sadly we've run out but it's uh, yeah, it's wonderful to hear these stories and i think certainly in terms of bringing together a real understanding of how research connects with its beneficiaries it's just a fantastic example of of how to do it really and just how how, how crucial it is to sort of be authentic in that as well. You know, it's not something that you can just sort of jump from one thing to the next. There's a kind of deep lifelong commitment really to it, which yeah, it yeah. really comes through in how you speak about it. So, and then the other thing that just struck me is that I just feel like there's lots of ways of hearing that I haven't experienced yet that your research and your yeah. outputs are, are just making possible. So I really look forward to seeing what comes next and hearing what comes next in particular. So well, yeah, the, 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 the thing to have a listen to if people do want to kind of hear some of these yeah. techniques is certainly the last record that we did, which is just a self-titled Go Go Penguin record with the with the white cover. That's That's got quite a lot going on. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, look, thanks so much for being here, Brendan. This is the first of our Impact series, so it's a great one to start on. And I look forward to seeing you again soon, I hope. All right. Thanks so much, Andy. Really appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that's how to do it. What a wonderful way to kick off the Research Impact series, talking to Dr. Brendan Williams about how his research as an artist and as a practitioner of research come together through collaboration with other artists to nudge the boundaries of some of the most creative and experimental musicians that are out there. Join me again for another episode of Repod to talk about research impact as we dive deep into how our researchers have made a difference. See you soon.